What if you had a guide who could tell you how to bridge a gap between who you are today and who you're destined to be? What if each week you could hear a story of someone who has tried and succeeded, or perhaps tried and failed, but learned something in the process? Limitless Spirit is a weekly podcast where host Helen Todd interviews guests about topics and personal stories on defining life's purpose, pursuing personal growth, and developing a deeper faith in Christ. It's rather like the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians. He says, who's bewitched you? You came to faith through the gospel of grace, and now you're following another gospel, the gospel of works. And what I'm saying to America, in essence, is who's bewitched you, America? You came through one revolution to freedom, and now you're following another one. So Americans have to decide which revolution are they going to follow. If they want to teach critical race theory and all that, that's the end of the republic as we've known it. But we don't want just to cancel it. We want to persuade people so they choose wisely and well and go back to something that's really good. In a time of deep division in American culture, people from all walks of life are calling for revolution and change. But what kind of revolution brings true freedom? In this episode, I talk with Oz Guinness, a Christian author and a social critic. Oz references the story of Exodus as the blueprint for freedom in human history. He states that biblical revolution is the only true revolution which establishes genuine freedom, justice, and the high place for human dignity. In this episode, we talk about Oz's fascinating family history, the call for a revolution in American culture, and the need for what he calls the Sinai Revolution. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Limitless Spirit podcast. Oz, welcome to the Limitless Spirit podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm excited to talk about your latest book. I know that you have authored quite a few books, but your latest book is called uh, The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. It sounds very intriguing, and I will be completely frank with you. I have not read it yet. (laughs) So... And probably uh, some of the listeners as well. So let's let's give them an idea why it is imperative for them to pick up your book and read it. But before we dive into it, let's talk a little bit about you. You are a very fascinating person. And one of the intriguing things that I find in your biography is that you were born in China to missionary parents. Yes, indeed. Um, You know, I come, I'm descended from Arthur Guinness, the Irish brewer. Uh, He was a Christian who came to faith under the preaching of John Wesley in the Irish revival. And I'm part of the family that's kept the faith alive ever since down the generations. So my grandfather was one of the first Western doctors in China. And both my parents were born there. And my mother was a doctor too. And I and my brothers were born there during World War II. So my first 10 years were in China, and I experienced the first two years of the Chinese Revolution, including the Reign of Terror, because at that stage we were living in Nanking, which was the southern capital of China. 
I have so many questions. Let's start with Arthur Guinness. I did not realize that he was a Christian, but he was a Protestant Christian or a Catholic Christian. Uh, he was an evangelical. You know, he was an evangelical that. Christian. I mean, oh. the name Guinness is... I mean, it's, it's connected either with beer or the book uh, of records, the Guinness Book of Records. Book of Records, and uh, it's just a very well-known name. But I didn't know that he was an evangelical Christian. I actually read up a little bit on the company itself, and it was quite an interesting concept. And the more I read, the more interesting it became, and and the practices that they used that are very consistent with Christian ethic. But that's for a different podcast. We won't even go in there. You know, John Wesley had the principle, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. So generosity and philanthropy was at the heart of the family from the very beginning. Now, you remember, some people are shocked by beer. But you remember, in the 18th century, the background problem, we have drug crisis today, they had the gin crisis. So Christians drank beer. It was a statement of moderation because you had the gin craze on one side and unhealthy water on the other side before modern plumbing. And so Christians drank beer. So it wasn't all that big a deal in those days. There was no teetotalism then. So it was a healthy solution, <laughs> a health drink, if you will. So your parents were also born in China. Yes, my grandfather and his sister, you may know the name Hudson Taylor. That was my question. So they were connected with Hudson Taylor's ministry. Well, my grandfather's sister was married to Hudson Taylor's son. Oh. So the books on Howard Taylor's life are by Mrs. Howard Taylor, but her maiden name is Geraldine Guinness, my father, my grandfather's sister. So yes, we're related by marriage to Hudson Taylor, um, and my family has done a lot in China. Well, Hudson Taylor is one of my missionary heroes because we as a ministry have been working in China since 1999, and we had the privilege of visiting a couple of churches in Wenzhou province of China that were started by Hudson Taylor and are still in existence, were in existence in 2000s. Uh, we got to minister at these churches and it was an extraordinary experience. So, wow, what an incredible connection. You know, my great-grandfather, the grand old age of 23, was the lead preacher in the Irish Revival. And we have newspaper accounts of his standing on the top, say, of a carriage and speaking to crowds of 25 or 30,000, and the spirit would fall. And in the north of Ireland, and in those days, Ireland was not divided, there was literally one crime after the revival in the whole year. He invited my great-grandfather when he was 30. He invited Hudson Taylor, who'd been to China once, to come to his Bible study and speak on China to the people there. And Hudson Taylor was so impassioned that half the Bible study signed up to go to China in the first big mission on the ship, the Lammermuir. And my great-grandfather and his wife, they signed up too. But Hudson Taylor said, no, at 30, you're too old. The rigors of China would be too much. So, But he said to him, don't be disappointed. You stay here 
and send out missionaries. So my great-grandfather founded one of the first missionary training colleges in London. He founded three missionary societies, and he sent out 1,500 missionaries from the college to China, to Africa, and to Latin America. So he was deeply involved in missions. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. I'm just absolutely fascinating. We really, we may have to do more than one podcast. I see so many themes here. And perhaps you will be interested to know that we actually do missionary work in Ireland as well. We partner with Cork Church in Cork, Ireland, and uh, have been working there for the last few years. I, I mm. love Ireland and I'm very, very excited about the opportunities that we have there. So let's uh, let's jump into talking about your latest book. What inspired you to write it? Well, obviously some of your listeners are far wider than America. We're at a civilizational moment with the decline of the West after 500 years of dominance and the rise of China, and the prospect of things like singularity. So in America, the world's lead society, America is suffering the deepest division. It's more divided than at any time since just before the Civil War. But why? Many reasons given, but I argue the deepest division is between those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, which, as you know, because of the Reformation, is rooted in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And on the other hand, those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of ideas that have come from the French Revolution. So you think of ideas that are troubling America today, postmodernism, the cancel culture, the sexual revolution, tribal politics, identity politics, go on down the line. All of those come not from the American Revolution, but from the heirs of the French Revolution. And Americans need to understand where the crisis comes from, because the two revolutions are entirely different, and they lead in entirely different directions. So you mentioned that we are at the time right now, we're ripe for another revolution. And, and basically, the choice is ours, which one of these two previous revolutions we will follow. But, you know, I'm originally from Russia. And even though it happened way before my time, you know, Russia has experienced a very cataclysmic revolution as well. The thing with revolutions is they're, they're necessary for, for the progress of society. But I think the, the how we're different right now is normally a revolution happens when one part of society, their needs are not met. And so they're the disquieted group that creates problems, comes up with a new ideology that helps them to move forward and achieve their goals. But in our case right now, everybody's dissatisfied. The people who follow the ideas uh, of the American Revolution are dissatisfied. The people who follow the ideology of the French Revolution are dissatisfied. So we're in a very different position. So what do you think is going to happen? What is going to tip the scale? Go back for a minute and think of the major revolutions in the modern world. The English, 1642. The American, 1776. The French. 1789, the Russian, as you said, in 1917, and the Chinese in 1949. I was there. 
The first two look different because the English failed. It's called the lost cause. And the Americans succeeded. It was the winning cause. But in fact, the first two are very similar, not just because they're both English speaking, but they both went back through the Reformation to the Bible. Whereas the French, the Russian, and the Chinese have a hatred of God, religion, the Christian faith at their core. Your fellow countryman, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, used to say that the hatred of God is more important to the radical left even than their politics and their economics. So we've got to begin by understanding the great differences between them and where they lead to. Because the ones on the radical left, no revolution has ever succeeded, and the oppression never ends. And that's the danger. And many American Christians are naive. They don't know history. They don't look at the outcome of these things. And so they're naive. Now, we could make an argument. The biblical revolution is the true one. And that's where the English revolution came from. You know the idea. God creates order, creation. Sin creates disorder. So God works into human disorder and turns it back the right way up. So revolution is not turning the world upside down. It's actually turning it the right way up. Although, of course, to those who are not Christians, it sounds as if you're turning the wrong way up. So you remember in Acts chapter 17, the agitators attack Paul and say, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here. Now, in fact, of course, the biblical revolution turns the world the right way up. So properly understood, the Christian faith is the true revolution, establishing genuine freedom, genuine justice, genuine high place for human dignity, all of those in the good news of Jesus. I couldn't agree more with you. So what is then the Sinai Revolution? Well, the Sinai Revolution is the Exodus Revolution, because, you know, the early church When Rome in 380, under the Emperor Theodosius, declared that Rome was officially Christian, it was the official religion, the church made a bad mistake, I think. It copied Roman structures of church government. So Rome had the Caesar and the consuls and the senators, and the church had the pope and the cardinals and the bishops. And it was hierarchical, based on power and easily corrupted. And you know the very famous statement, all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, Mm -hmm. was said by a Catholic layman criticizing his own church. But the Reformation said, no, that wasn't biblical. And so first Calvin, and then Zwingli and Bullinger, and in Scotland, John Knox, and in England, Oliver Cromwell, and in America, people like John Winthrop, They said, we must go back to the Bible, sola scriptura, back to the scriptures. And the biblical way of government is covenantal. And Americans don't realize the U.S. Constitution is a form of covenant. And it has distinctive features, all of which go back to Exodus. For example, Helen, you know, free people love the idea, the consent of the governed. The people have to agree. Where does that come from? Exodus. Three times it says that when the Lord put forward the covenant, it answers, and all that the Lord says, we will do. 
That's the first time in history you have the consent of the governed. Or the notion of checks and balances, which is where the American Revolution and the biblical revolution are very realistic. Humans with power will abuse. So you need checks and balances. You need a separation of powers. And in the Old Testament, you have the king, the priest, and the prophet. And the prophet is on the level with the king and the priest as a servant of the covenant. And so there are many features of the American system. Americans don't realize it. They come from Exodus, what I call the Sinai Revolution. This is extremely interesting. So we have the blueprint for success. How do we implement it? It it doesn't look like we're winning this this war at this point, uh, the war of ideologies. And of course, as Christians, you know, our weapons are different than the ones of the world. So we know that we have the winning ideology and we have a blueprint that can help not only our country, but should work beautifully all around the world. How do we implement it? Where do we go from here? Well, you're exactly right. But remember, if it's a blueprint and it gives us a benchmark, people have got to know what it is. And very few Americans could describe how the American experiment should be based and what the first principles are. They simply don't know. Here's a big difference in the 1850s. You had a Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, who believed in what he called the better angel of the American nature. And in the light of that, in the light of the Declaration, he tackled the issues like slavery. But you take the previous president, make America great again. He never said what made America great in the first place. And I, as a visitor, I'm not American. I'm an admirer. I'm appalled how few Americans know their system. Now, there are easy to see reasons for that. For, for example, you might be interested. The rabbis point out, go back to Exodus, the Passover. This night, after 430 years, they're going free. Moses never mentions freedom. Where are they going to the promised land of milk and honey that they long for? He never mentions it. But three times, Moses talks about children. Because the story we tell to our children is the key to identity, who we are, and to continuity, making sure it's passed on from generation to generation. And you can see that both, sadly, in the church in the West, but also in America, that's broken down. So in America, that used to be taken care of in what was called civic education in the public schools. And that meant you could come from Ireland or China or Mexico or Italy or wherever, Russia, and you became American, a pluribus unum, out of many, one. Well, at the end of the 60s, through the radicalism, civic education was thrown out. And then came in what was called the Howard Zinn view of history. And more recently, you have things like the 1619 Project, which say that America is more to slavery than it owes to the founders' views of freedom. Well, the ideas being taught in American public schools are literally suicidal. The Republic is finished if that's what it teaches to the next generation. Now, of course, the same is true in the church. Every generation has to hand on, in this case, faith, not freedom. 
But if they fail and the batons dropped, you have a generation, Generation Z in this case, who simply don't know what the faith is. And then they swallow all the criticisms of faith from surrounding them in the culture. Now, that's all there. You know, so as the rabbis point out, Babylonians and Egyptians and Greeks and Romans and British all built monuments. The Jews built schools. And that's one of the reasons they survived despite incredible persecution and incredible scattering. Schools and history and families passing it on were the key to their survival and transmission. That's a great point. So what do you think would be the practical application to that? I have my youngest son. He is very much the Generation Z, you know, so... Do we take him out of the public school? Do we enroll him into a private school? As you mentioned, the church is sort of failing that generation too. I'm I'm very passionate about that subject because, you know, it concerns my my child. So what do you think is the solution? Well, I'm not in favor of canceling. The cancel culture is awful. It's just shutting people up. But we've got to present America as a whole with a choice. It's rather like the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians. He says, who's bewitched you? You came to faith through the gospel of grace, and now you're following another gospel, the gospel of works. And what I'm saying to America, in essence, is who's bewitched you, America? You came through one revolution to freedom, and now you're following another one. So Americans have to decide, including the leadership here in Washington and so on, which revolution are they going to follow? If they want to teach critical race theory and all that, that's the end of the republic as we've known it. But we don't want just to cancel it. We want to persuade people so they choose wisely and well and go back to something that's really good. Now, when it comes to the church, you know, we have something else, which is prayer. If we were doing a whole story of my family, you know, I I mentioned my great grandfather in the revival. Well, his mother's story is, I haven't time to go into that, Ireland's last duel. 1815, the year of the Battle of Waterloo, a city councillor in Dublin insulted Daniel O'Connell, the great Irish liberator. The only recourse was a duel. But the councillor was a crack shot, and O'Connell was a duffer with guns. But to everyone's amazement, the duffer missed. I think he intended to miss. And O'Connell didn't intend to hit him, but did hit him and killed him. The man's wife was devastated. Early 20s, children, she con- she considered suicide, the scandal, the bankruptcy, and so on, mercifully came back to faith, and she met and married my great-great-grandfather. But here's the point, Helen. She became a great woman of prayer, and our family records show that she prayed for 10 generations of us every single day. And if you look down the line of the people after her, almost every one of them, with very few exceptions, has been a follower of Jesus. And I associate it with the Lord's grace, but also this great woman's prayer for future generations. So we don't just rely on schools, because some of them aren't too good. Although if you have a possibility, many of the private schools teach much better education, and they teach the classics, and they teach faith, and so on. But not everyone is able to do it, and uh, many of the charter schools do it too. I'm very glad you shared that story, and 
brought the point that we have the greatest weapon in the world, and that is prayer. We, we are equipped to do that. Every one of us is equipped to use this weapon, regardless of our social status, age, education. And prayer moves mountains, and prayer transforms nations, communities, and essentially the world. So... One last word to our listeners. What would you uh, say to people who want to know beyond prayer how else they can utilize their faith to impact their family, their children, their communities, and essentially the rest of the world? Well, you know, when we think of leadership in America, a lot of people think of the person at the top or the person out in front. And they're the leaders, the rest of us aren't. That isn't the biblical view. The biblical view of leadership has the idea of responsibility. Those who take responsibility for what's right in front of them, a crisis maybe, an opportunity maybe, but exactly in their sphere and at their level. So it's not just the senators or the presidents or an Abraham Lincoln, but every one of us. Because if we think the Lord called us, given us certain gifts that nobody else has. And we have our family, our neighborhood, our workplace. And then each of us has tiny little circles that we influence. You know, you have your podcasts and many other things. I'm a writer. Doctors have patients. You know, everyone has a circle that they influence. And the question is, are we being responsible for doing all we can as a matter of calling in the spheres and at the levels the Lord has put us. That's all we're responsible for. And again, you know, the Jews had the notion of every Jew responsible for every Jew. But they would say, we're only guilty when we could have done something or we could have said something and we didn't. So a lot of Christians today are keeping their heads down. They're afraid, they're demoralized, they're discouraged, we're under attack and so on. We've got to ask ourselves, every time we have a chance to stand up and speak out, let's have the courage and the confidence in the gospel to do it, whatever level we're in. And if we do it all together, then we'll be salty and light-bearing. You know, put it this way, the scandal of the American church, unlike, say, Britain or France or Ireland or wherever, it's the one church in the West that's a huge majority. So take our Jewish friends. They're only 2% of America, tiny. The Jews say they are less than the tiniest statistical error in a Chinese census. They're so small. But they punch above their weight, intellectually, culturally, financially. And we, as followers of Jesus, are called to be salt and light. And yet, although we're a majority, we're not salty, and we're not light-bearing. And we need to ask the Lord's forgiveness and learn to move out again with courage and with confidence in the Lord and in the gospel. This is very inspiring. So um, for our listeners who would like to purchase your book, how can they do this? Probably the simplest way is Amazon. Amazon. Amazon.com, it's on there. Well, we will post the link uh, to your book specifically on Amazon in our show notes. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining and sharing. Well, thank you, Helen. A great privilege. And I just say, God bless you. 
Oz has brought so much wisdom and insight to revolutions throughout history. What biblical revolution looks like and how can we impact our world and the people around us? It is easy to become frustrated or fearful as we see the impact that changing culture has on our country and the people we love. But our hope is still in God to bring the revolution and revival to our nation. Like Oz said, God works into human disorder and turns it back the right way up. At World Missions Alliance, we believe that changed lives change lives. In this episode, we mentioned a couple of places uh, where we do our ministry. If you would like more information on what we do and how you can get involved, please visit our website, rfwma.org. I hope you enjoy this. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Limitless Spirit podcast. Until next time, I'm Helen Todd. Limitless Spirit podcast is produced by World Missions Alliance. We believe that changed lives change lives. If you want to see your life transformed by Christ's love, or if you want to help those who are hurting and hopeless and discover your greater purpose in serving Christ through short-term missionary work, check out our website, rfwma.org, and find out how to get involved.